Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the Dosilicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, June 14th, 2020, and this is show number 788. Well, if you have an ever so slight Apple bias too, I'm sure you know that Apple has scheduled their virtual Worldwide Developers Conference for Monday, June 22nd at 10 a.m. Pacific time. Steve and I will be glued to our respective Apple TVs to see what new shiny fun we're going to get in our next operating systems. You know, a little bit of me feels a sense of horror and dread after last year, but maybe it'll be awesome this year. Anyway, if you'd like to chat with us and the other Nocella castaways who just can't get enough, go to potfeet.com slash live to join in the fun. The chat for the live show and other special events like this is all done through a Discord channel that I set up, which is welcome and open to all. I've got a Discord widget built right into the live show page, but you might find the experience more fun if you join the server for real and get yourself the app for iOS, macOS, Windows, Android, or Linux. There's links to all of those options right on the live show page. The good news is that Steve and I will not be live on video or even audio, so don't be confused by the live show page. We will not be talking. We want to be able to hear the presentations, as I'm sure you do too, so we'll just be chatting in text along with everyone else. I hope to see you there. Remember, it's podfeet.com slash live. I mentioned last week that Steve and I are going to take our safe bubble and combine it with our kids' safe bubbles, and we're going to go away to an Airbnb for a week, the 22nd of June to the 28th. If you guys could help me out, I'd sure appreciate some recordings so I can spend some more time in the pool with Forbes instead of having to sit in the back corner writing. If you could get them to me by, say, the 22nd, so I was sure they'd be available for the following weekend, that would be awesome. Just pick up some tech from your desk and tell us all about it. Jill already sent in a recording, so we've got a good start already. This week's episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond is another installment of Programming by Stealth. This week, Bart explains one single concept, and it's kind of a weird thing. It's called HAZA, like H-A-S-A. This is part one of two, where next time we're going to learn Iza. So there's Haza and Iza, which is apparently about inheritance, but we haven't learned about that yet. These both sound like odd terms, but they're part of what makes object-oriented programming so powerful. Bart spends 90% of the time in this episode going through a worked example, which not only explains how classes can have instances of other classes as properties, but also how classes can be more specific versions of other classes. Boy, that sounds confusing, and it is a little bit, but I think I got the hang of it by the end. Now, along the way, I think he also achieved his goal of cementing the foundations of getters and setters and class functions and instance functions. We'll see if I can use them in anger on the homework, though. In any case, I've got a link in the show notes to Bart's fabulous tutorial show notes over at pbs.bartificer.net. Dr. Marianne Gary from New Zealand, favorite of the Chit Chat Across the Pond Light episodes, has a nasty habit of sending me super long-form articles she thinks I would enjoy reading. It's not that I don't like to read, because I actually love to read. And it's not that the things she sends aren't fascinating. The problem is carving out time where I'm not already doing something else. Now, you might have noticed that I write a lot. That takes up a lot of time. And of course, I first have to learn the thing I'm writing about. You may have assumed that I'm just brilliant off the top of my head about all these topics, but it's actually quite time-consuming to learn everything I can about a product before writing about it. For example, just reviewing the Wise scale took a lot of time to learn the differences between that one and the Withing scale. I even had to contact support and take photos and screenshots too. 
So there's the research and writing time, but then, of course, there's the time to actually record the podcast, too. And then there's Chit Chat Across the Pond Light, where I have to find guests and research them and come up with articulate questions and then make those recordings. And don't forget programming by stealth, too. Bart obviously does 98% of the heavy lifting, but the homework for that class takes up a lot of my time because I'm still kind of slow at doing it. Now, I didn't mean this to be a pity party about how busy I am. It's just explained that when I have my eyeballs available, I'm usually working on other stuff on my computer or my iPad or my iPhone. So just sitting with an iPad or an iPhone or in front of my Mac reading doesn't seem to work for me. The other problem is that I have the attention span of a gerbil. I simply can't read on a computer or mobile device because of all the other entertainment that's available to me. You know, Twitter, messages, uh, Telegram, they're all more interesting than anything long form on which I'm attempting to concentrate. But there are lots of times where my ears are unoccupied, but the rest of me is doing something else. Last week, Marianne sent me an open source article entitled A Perspective on the Relevance and Public Reception of Psychological Science. Now, that opening sentence convinced me this one would be interesting. Here's what it said. In this short commentary, data from the website Reddit is used to examine how people receive social psychological research. I wanted to read this, but I didn't want to take the time to sit down in front of a device to do it. I decided to let my Mac read it to me instead. That way I could brush my teeth while I listened. The Mac has text-to-speech built right into the operating system. In any application, you can select a segment of text, go to the edit menu, and pull down to speech, and choose start speaking the Mac will immediately begin to read out loud what you've selected. The other problem is that I have the attention span of a gerbil. I simply can't read on a computer or mobile device because of all the other entertainment that's available to me. Okay, uh, that doesn't really sound that good. The process works, but there's a lot of problems with it. First of all, that going up to a menu and using a pull-down is so tedious, especially because if you decide you want it to stop reading to you, you have to go all the way back to the same drop-down menu and select Stop Speaking. Secondly, that sounded really bad, didn't it? It was too slow and it was very mechanical sounding. But we can fix both of these problems. If you open up System Preferences and select the Accessibility Preference preference pane, you can then select Speech in the left sidebar. At the top, you'll see the System Voice. By default, in the United States, it is set to Alex, and the Speed Slider is set to Normal. Let's play the sample from the default right in System Preferences right now. Most people recognize me by my voice. All right, we can make two changes to improve this dramatically. Using the drop-down on the voice, see if in your country you have the option for Siri female. I'm pretty sure it's not available everywhere, but I know they've added more countries recently. Hopefully it's available for you to choose from the system voice drop-down. I'd also recommend speeding up the voice just a smidge to make it a little bit faster. Let's listen to the sample with the Siri female voice set to about 65%. Hello, my name is Siri. I am an American English voice. Okay, now that's a voice you could listen to for a while. Let's go back to my text editor and use the speech menu again to listen to Siri with the same text I let Alex read earlier. It should sound quite a bit better now. The other problem is that I have the attention span of a gerbil. I simply can't read on a computer or mobile device because of all the other entertainment that's available to me. Okay, so for some reason, text-to-speech has picked up that I chose to speed up the voice because that was faster than the first time Alex read it, but it quite obviously did not notice that I chose the Siri voice. I think this is a bug, 
But I got to tell you, I'm so tired of contacting Apple about bugs in their operating system that I have simply given up. Luckily, I found a workaround that fixes a second problem we had as well as that. Back in accessibility under speech, there's a checkbox that says speak selected text when the key is pressed. If you check that box, it will show you that the default key press is option escape, and you can change that keystroke if you want. Now, when we go back to the text we've been using for our testing, instead of using a giant pull down like an animal, we can select the text and simply hit option escape to hear it read in the dulcet tones of Siri Female US. The other problem is that I have the attention span of a gerbil. I simply can't read on a computer or mobile device because of all the other entertainment that's available to me. Now it sounds good. Maybe this is a tad fast for a technical paper, but for some reason I found that a faster voice seems to force me to pay attention better. Maybe it's in my imagination. Maybe Marianne should do a study on it. In any case, you can fiddle with the speed till you get it the way it works for you. So now we have a great voice speaking at the speed we desire and a keystroke to invoke it instead of the menu. And guess what? You can stop her from speaking with the same option escape keystroke. It's absolutely glorious. Let's see how that technical paper that Marianne asked me to read sounds. In this short commentary, data from the website Reddit is used to examine how people receive social psychological research. The data show that people care greatly about research dealing with humans. Links tagged as psychology, social sciences, and health are upvoted more than other categories on Reddit. Well, I thought that sounded pretty good, and that's how I listened to the entire paper, and I was able to do it while I was brushing my teeth. Now, some of you might be thinking that I would recommend using Audio Hijack to capture the Mac, reading this out loud, and then saving it to a file so it can be played back on your iPhone on a walk or while vacuuming. Now, of course, Audio Hijack is exactly how I made these recordings for you, but for something just as, t as technical as this, it actually wouldn't work out to make a recording and then stick it on my phone. The reason is every once in a while, Siri got confused and started reading letter by letter. I needed to stop and start her a few words down and get her going again. I'm not exactly sure why that was, but this paper also had a lot of graphs and equations and terminology. But if you've got something that you need to read that's a little less complicated linguistically, then that's a great idea. In Audio Hijack, simply drag in a block for system audio as the input and a recorder block. The default is 256 kilobits per second stereo for the recording, and you can change those settings if you want to, but that's fine. I recommend also adding an output device block set to your speakers or headphones so that you can hear the sound of what's being recorded so you know when to hit the stop button. Maybe you want to leave the room or something, but you want to be able to hear it coming out of the speakers and go hit stop once it's finished. You can save the file to the Files app, Dropbox, Google Drive, OneDrive, or even probably the Music app, and then it'll be playable back on your iPhone whilst you get your exercise. The bottom line is that I can now listen to the long articles Marianne sends to me and become a smarter person while listening to a beautiful voice. One of the banes of our online existence is writing something on the internet and only later noticing that there's a typo in what we wrote. I can't tell you how many tweets I write and delete, write and delete, because I keep messing them up. I really wish I could edit them. Another place that's rife with typos is Apple Messages. It's interesting that a standard syntax is actually developed organically for acknowledging our own typos. If you're not aware of the community standard, you're encouraged to make your next message start with an asterisk followed by the corrected word. 
Not being able to fix what I've written is one of the reasons, amongst many, that I really dislike Apple Messages. I've grown rather fond of the application Telegram from telegram.org in lieu of messages. One of the many reasons I prefer Telegram is because you can actually edit what you've written after you hit send. To edit a previously sent message on a mobile device, you can press and hold on the text of what you've written, and you get a little pop-up menu offering you a couple of options. One option is to simply delete what you've written. Unlike messages, where you can only delete messages on your end, Telegram gives the option of deleting for both you and your recipient. I can think of reasons why maybe that would be a bad thing, but I really like it. The cooler option available in the pop-up on Telegram is to edit what you've written. If you select Edit, the text of what you've written drops back into the text entry area, ready to be modified. It's a little confusing visually, though, because the same typo-filled message is repeated right above the text editing area. It's represented there with an X next to it because you may change your mind and want to leave it the way it was originally written. Now, if you're on the desktop version of Telegram, rather than pressing with your finger, you right-click or command-click on the text you've written that you'd like to modify, and you get the same menu to delete or edit. As cool as that is, we're just now getting to the tiny tip I'm going to give you for today. If you're a fan of the command line in the terminal on macOS or Linux or any other Nix, you know that to repeat the previous thing you typed, you simply hit the up arrow. I'm rather fond of that keystroke and I use it quite often in the terminal. But one day I was writing in Telegram and I thought I'd like to fix that line I'd just written. Out of habit from using the command line, I hit the up arrow and there was my text ready to modify. No clumsy right-clicking or pressing on anything, just up arrow and boom, you're ready to edit. Now that would have qualified as maybe a nano tip rather than a tiny tip if I'd stopped right there. But armed with this glorious improvement, I was in the live show chat at podfeet.com live, and I tried the up arrow trick in Discord, and it worked there too. I was so happy to be able to edit my fumble-fingered comments to the live audience. As soon as the live show was over, I rushed to our Slack community at podfeet.com Slack, and I tried the up arrow edit trick there. Huzzah, it works! No more hunting around for the correct three dots to find the edit menu in Slack. Now, if you're of the iPad OS persuasion and use an external keyboard with the iPad, like, say, Apple's Magic Keyboard, the up arrow works on Telegram, Discord, and Slack in the iPad, too. The same trick works with the Apple Keyboard Folio for the iPad Pro, and I even hauled out an ancient Zag keyboard I found on the shelf of, of abandoned hardware, and the up arrow worked perfectly to trigger the edit menu on all three apps on iPad OS. That leads me to believe that any keyboard with a set of arrow keys paired to your iPad would have the same functionality. Now, you may think that this tiny tip isn't worthy of such a prestigious moniker, but it has made me unreasonably happy, and I was glad I was able to share it with you. I was thinking it was kind of a dorky little tip, but when I told Bart, he was just like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. So, okay, it's not just me. At least me and Bart are super, super excited. Actually, Klaus Wolf was super excited when I showed him too. So there's three of us that think this is life-changing. I know that it's not weird to want to be paid for my efforts on the podcast, and I know it's not weird to want to have this thing that I'm doing here not cost me money, but I still worry that you'll question my motives, as you should, if I endorse products where I make a commission. With the loss of the Amazon affiliate program, I've been looking for more ways to offset the cost of the show. Now, you know that I'm in love with the products from Wise. 
Over the years, I've told you that I'm crazy about the Wise Cam. It's like a $25 webcam that's amazing. I think we have four or five of them. We can't stop buying them. We bought them for the kids. We got a ton of these things. Um, I've talked to you about the Wise Smart Bulbs. They're only eight bucks. I've talked to you about the Wise Sense, their tiny motion sensor and proximity detectors, and the Wise Smart Plugs, and most recently, that $20 Wise Scale last week. I just found out that they have an affiliate program now. I signed up and it pays a 10% commission, which is crazy high. Now, maybe it's that high because the products are so inexpensive. I mean, you buy one of those bulbs, I'm making 80 cents here. So, you know, it's good money. Anyway, from day, today forward, if you hear me talk about a wise product with glee and excitement, you may want to question my motives. I promise I won't ever tell you about a product and tell you it's awesome if it isn't. But it's only logic, logical to tilt your head to one side and think, Hmm, she really that excited? Or is it the 10% that's driving her, driving her comments? Well, so far, the only product I haven't told you about that I've bought from Wise is the iHealth no-touch thermometer that they're selling from iHealth. I didn't tell you about it for two reasons. One is that they're resellers and it's not really their product, but it also seemed to give me really inconsistent results when we first got it. My temperature was swinging like five degrees within a single session. I wrote to customer support and they gave me a couple of tips like making sure I always point it at the exact same spot on my forehead, do it at the same time of day, don't do it right after exercise, and a few other tips. I set the thermometer aside for a few weeks and I finally tried it again using their advice. Sure enough, it's been rock solid. It's contactless, so I hold it where it's pointing right between my eyebrows and I push the button three times. The temperature shown on the three tries has been within a tenth of a degree or so at each sitting. I've been taking my temp daily for the last couple of weeks, so I have a baseline just in case things go wrong, and the variation across all those days has been one degree in like three weeks. Now, I didn't mean this to be a review of the thermometer, but rather to explain why I didn't ever tell you about it before. If it had worked right away, and if it was a connected thermometer that recorded my temperature automatically, and if there were not resellers, I've I'd have told you about that for sure. In any case, I'm excited to have Wise affiliate links to share with you, and if I'm not too lazy, I'm going to try to go back a ways in my post to add those affiliate links. Maybe I can get Steve to do it for me. Anyway, I will be sure to qualify my, my links by, the, by saying that it's an affiliate link if I do that. And of course, I've included a link in the show notes to the top-level Wise page with my affiliate link to wise.com. Now, I want to add one more thing here. Barry Porter made a comment on the blog post about my Wise affiliate program, but actually about the thermometer. I was complaining that it wasn't a connected thermometer, so it wasn't really as cool as what I wanted. He put a link to a series shortcut that you can add to uh, put your uh, temperature into the health app. I tested it. It worked great. I've been writing it down on a piece of paper like an animal, but it worked great to add it to the health app. And I was even able to copy what he had given me and uh, add in my O2 sensor readings because we check our O2 as well, our oxygen saturation, that is. So anyway, he's got a link in the um, in the blog post that you can go find. You can download that uh, shortcut and you can use any thermometer you want. And you can update it into the health app so you can chart it and graph it and all that good nerdy stuff. When I started to learn to program for Bart Bouchot's in October of 2015, when we started programming by stealth, I didn't really have the vision to understand what that would mean. I don't think I expected really to be able to do the things that I can do today. 
Caleb Fong tipped us off in our PBS Slack channel to a podcast called Code Newbie, which is stories from people on their coding journeys. I like it because they talk about how they attack problems, how they learn, and often talk about whether they're real developers. So far, of the ones I've listened to, most of them say no. They'll sidestep it and say, oh, I just tinker, or I'm kind of a hack. I was talking to Klaus Wolf the other day, and when I referred to him as a developer, he said, not a dev, just someone who codes. I think it might just come with the territory that you might feel competent in programming, but you never feel like you really got it. I'm not sure. I've been rolling around in my head what it feels like to learn to code, and it might explain this phenomenon. When I first started learning to code, I was definitely like a baby learning to crawl. It wasn't that I was making mistakes. It was that I didn't even understand what I was supposed to be doing. I could mimic what others had typed, but the words of explanation were pretty much gibberish to me. Eventually, I was able to do a, fair, a few very rudimentary things on my own. I remember distinctly the first time I wrote the code all by myself to increment a variable so I could loop through a task. I felt like I finally stood up on my own two feet. I had made fire. I wasn't just mimicking. I had solved a real problem, and I had done it by myself. I wish I could truly remember what it felt like when I was a toddler and I stood for the first time, but I imagine it feeling much like that. I'm pretty sure I wrote to Bart that day to tell him about my amazing accomplishment. And like a good daddy, he patted me on my little pumpkin head and told me he was proud of me. This was genuine. I don't mean he was condescending at all. I actually use that phrase. I need a pat on my little pumpkin head. But I think it pleased him to no end that I was so proud of myself and that I was starting to stand on my own two feet because that really is his goal, right? That's what he's trying to get us to do. Now, eventually, I was able to actually walk upright. I was unsteady on my programming legs, but I was moving forward. Now, Dorothy was there holding my hand a lot, steadying me on my unstable programming legs. Now, Bart has continuously stressed learning to read documentation. For at least three years, I would get angry at him when he would tell me to RTFM. I took offense, not just that it sounded profane, because he says it means read the fine manual, but also because I was trying to read the fine manual. Again, it was 100% gibberish to me. The jQuery docs are the worst. It was like, you know, when you ask someone to define a word and they use the word in the definition... During times like this, I was crawling again like a baby and no longer walking. As time went on, I stood up and I fell down and I stood up and I fell down again. And I eventually seemed able to keep standing. I could walk without assistance. And one day I began to run. It was glorious. Instead of Dorothy having to give me hints, I was writing functions on my own. They didn't always do what I intended, but I could see the results of my web app design in my browser. I could see the error messages in the JavaScript console. I could see the line numbers and find the misplaced squiggly bracket or the typoed variable name. My vision of my apps was finally starting to take form in front of my very eyes. Caleb Fong had suggested I use Microsoft's Visual Studio Code as my editor, and as I learned more about it, he encouraged me with plugins to help me go even faster. Then Helma from the Netherlands stepped in and started teaching me version control. Bart had given me the baby steps of how to create a GitHub account so I could upload my files, but I didn't know how to use the version control parts of Git. Helma introduced me to her favorite graphical user interface to Git, SourceTree from Atlassian. She taught me how to commit tiny changes to my local repository so if I messed things up, I could roll back the changes. She kept saying, commit, er commit early, commit often. 
She walked me through what it means to push and pull and to get my local code to go up to GitHub so it was safe, but only when I had a good working version. By now, I was in a full-on sprint. I could do everything. But then I would hit what Z. Frank described in his interview in Code Newbies as the Valley of Despair. Just a minute ago, I was sprinting, but suddenly I've hit this giant mountain that for the life of me, I cannot climb up. Often when I'm in the Valley of Despair, it's about something really simple too. I've spent literally weeks doing something like trying to get a plugin to work that's supposed to let users of my tool type into a search box. Bart did it. Michael Westbay did it. Dorothy did it. Why can't I do it? And yes, I read the fine manual. You know, as an actual runner, I find that some days I can run like the wind. Other days, it feels like I'm running through molasses. On the days when it's super hard, I am convinced that it will be always this way. I will always be really, really hard to run. I will never run fast again. I'm too old. I'm worthless. But for some reason, on the speedy running days, I don't feel like I will always run fast. I think to myself, well, this is rare. I better enjoy it because it's never going to happen again. The same thing seems to happen to me when coding. On the days when I'm in the valley of despair, I am convinced I'm not good at this. I'll never be good at this. My memory is too weak and my imagination is too small, so I should probably just give up. Then something happens to bring me back into it. This week, I showed off my newest project, which I call the Time Shifter Clock. It features a range slider that you can use to shift the time in your own time zone while also shifting the time in another time zone of your choosing. Now, lots of clocks show you what time it is in another time zone, but the time shifter clock figures out what time it will be in another time zone. I do want to point out this project was inspired by Terry Brett's time scroller, OS X widget, and his iOS app, which, by the way, are getting big upgrades. He's almost ready to deliver a new iOS app. And then uh, he's also going to put a, uh, he's doing a menu bar app for the Mac, and I'm very excited about those. Anyway, I was showing off my masterpiece, my, my time shifter clock, to Klaus Wolf. And he mentioned that he, he said he liked it. He said all the nice things. But he, he mentioned that he really liked the lookup text area that allowed user, the user to type in a city name. This was, of course, the plugin that had slowed me down for a full two weeks. Even after all that effort, the search box wasn't perfect and I knew it. If a city name has a space in it, the official list of time zone names I'm using puts an underscore in place of the space. For example, if the user types in LOS, they will find Los Angeles. That's L-O-S. They'll find Los Angeles. But if they add a space after LOS, the search box will empty and show no results. I knew about it, but I hadn't gotten around to fixing it yet. Remember, I (laughs) I took two weeks to get it as far as it was. Klaus noticed this problem too and suggest, I suggested, I said, hey, you fix it for me. You figure it out. Well, Klaus had never used GitHub before, but he figured out how to download my source code and he figured out how to fix the underscore problem. But here's the cool part. I asked him if he could just submit his fix officially as a pull request to GitHub. This would send me a message saying he was requesting I pull his version of the code into and merge it into mine. This is the power of version control and having open source code. I could see what code he had changed. I could test his code. And if it worked, I could accept his code and merge it into mine. I was able to keep working on other things while he solved a problem that would have taken me weeks to solve. Remember I told you up front that it seems a system of programmers that we don't see ourselves as real developers? 
And remember, it was this very same Klaus who uh, that I said uh, when I called him a dev said, not a dev, just someone who codes. See, it's not just me. I do want to give a shout out to listener Jill. She stays very quietly in the background, but she often sends me very long, wonderful documents where she tries to explain things to me that Bart has explained in the show, but that never really sunk into my head quite correctly. They're very entertaining and they're wonderful. And they have helped me with those things that I keep saying are gibberish. They have become much less gibberishy to me. Now, the bottom line is, even though I'm technically still in the valley of despair this week because I don't know how to do my homework for the next assignment, I think I can officially call myself a developer. Maybe my projects aren't changing the world, and maybe other developers could have written them in their sleep, and maybe I'm the slowest kid in the PBS class, but I am a developer. I can prove it. I have a set of projects on GitHub. I have contributed to other people's projects, and people have contributed to my projects now. If you'd like to play with my amazing time shifter clock, I put a link in the show notes to it. It's podfeet.com slash code, and then it's time-shifter-clock. So go to the show notes and find the link. And uh, by the way, in my blog post, I really wanted to illustrate this crawling, walking, running, crawling, walking, mountain climbing. And I asked Jeff Gamut if he would draw some little uh, little figures for me to illustrate it. So I have commissioned the artwork of Mr. Jeff Gamut, and you can follow him on Twitter at jgamut. Sunday, 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 followed by Monday, Monday, Monday. Every Sunday night, treat yourself to the supercharged creation of the Nazilla cast. Here, Allison and Steve battle head-to-head over what's gone wrong with this week's technical production aspects. Can't make it Sunday? Listen to the Nazilla cast any day of the week and learn tricks, tips, and what have you. Technology Geek Podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. So purchase your tickets today through Patreon, PayPal, or that guy hanging out on the corner over there, and prepare yourself for the dual Hemi action with the spectacular castaways. That's every week on NozillaCast. that time of the week again it's time for security bits with bart boost shots what's shaking in the security world this week bart lots of things are shaking in the security world this week um actually no that's not true it was a pleasantly quiet rss reader this morning which is probably a good thing because i i ended up staying up very late last night because we went long recording and then i Oh, did I have a mess in my kitchen? Apparently, the nicer a dinner you make, the more you have to clean up afterwards. Do you know that? <laughs> yes, yeah, soup doesn't do well. It depends on if you make it from scratch, I suppose. If you open, I was just going to say I can make a big bad. mess with soup. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we do actually. We have a, a fair chunk. We have one one shallow deep dive. I don't know what you want to call that, but it's it's don't panic. Is is the good news? Um. I guess we should start with some follow-ups to previous stories. So the first one comes as no surprise. I think you predicted it. Uh, I think I predicted it. Last time we mentioned the uncovered jailbreak, and we all said, oh, I bet that'll be patched quickly. Yep. Yes, it was. Ah, okay. A few days after we recorded, Apple updated all of their operating systems with a patch to the kernel, which was the bug that was at the heart of Uncover. And then a few days later, the other shoe dropped when Apple stopped digitally signing iOS 13.5. 
thereby making it impossible to downgrade in order to jailbreak. Oh, good. So, yeah. So basically, door closed as expected. Uh, the roll towards exposure notification, contact tracing, etc. apps continues. Um, well, it's not just those kind of apps. There's lots of COVID-related apps. So Apple have an app which basically gives you CDC guidance and stuff, but that app has now been updated to allow you to track anonymously symptom tracking, basically. So it's sort of like intelligence for the CDC. Now, that's that's an American-only app. Um mm. But America's quite big, so that's a lot of people. Oh, okay. So that has nothing to do with the contact tracing thing. Correct. So it's basically CDC information and the ability for you to submit symptoms, which goes back to the CDC anonymously. Okay. I think I ran through this uh, when I first got it. I got all excited going, oh, this is it. And uh, I can see it says it's got the Apple logo and the CDC logo when you open it up. It's just called COVID-19 when you see it on screen. But it uh, it, Probably. Just goes, it just goes through and says, so you got a fever, having trouble breathing, feel like crap? <laughs> yeah. No, nope. well, It's been updated a few times, so it may not okay. be quite as simplistic as when you last played with it. But I tried to download it and I went, you're not in America, sod off. Okay. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Oh, I'm not allowed Apple's guidance. Anyway, uh, our friends in the UK continue to live in a very murky world. Um, there is still much confusion about what exactly it is they're doing. Um, so they had this, initially they had this great big strategy and behind it was going to be this amazing database and the app was going to be the central part of their strategy. And then they, they sort of said, oh no, the app is just one thing we're doing, but we have this massive big project and we gave out lots of really expensive contracts to private companies, but we're keeping those contracts secret. And then the Open Democracy Alliance sued and got to see the contract. And actually, it turns out that Boris Johnson is giving his friends access to people's medical data for commercial use and paying them massive amounts of money for the for the pleasure. You remember so that in was the old days when we would have been appalled? and su- uh, I'm sorry, we're still appalled, but we would have been surprised. Yeah. I long for those days when this would have been enough of a scandal to crash a government. Yeah. Now it's just like, oh, it's Tuesday. Oh, yeah. look at that. Um. Then apparently the first bit of news that broke then after that was that the UK was having second thoughts about not using Google and Apple's framework because, of course, it doesn't work. Uh, and wait, then they said, oh, yeah, wait, we're launching it any day now. Wait, wait. Well, not using it. Trying to, trying okay. to use Bluetooth without using the API doesn't right. work. That's why I said Many okay, countries good. have found out. Mm-hmm. And so then we heard that apparently the app was launching in the coming weeks. And then we heard that, actually, no, they're not considering Apple's API anymore. And the app is coming out, quote, when the time is right. And the phrase they're now using, instead of it being a central pillar of their solution, it is now the cherry on the cake, whatever that means. (laughs) So I can't understand what's going on. Sorry, UK listeners, I've done my best. Meanwhile, a whole bunch of European countries are moving forward with Apple and Google's API. Um, one of those, uh, well, it's not quite in the European Union, but it's close. Switzerland, their parliament has passed an act enabling the rollout of the app, which they have had ready for a while. Italy is also on its way with Apple's API. And Singapore did not go the Apple route. And it has now been revealed that the reason they didn't make their app compulsory is because, say it with me, it doesn't work in iOS because they're not using the bloody API. I don't get why this is confusing so many countries. Yeah, it's like, really wait, wait, it doesn't work? Yeah. 
let's develop it. Oh, anyway. Um, in April, we talked about a problem with Nintendo's old Nintendo Network ID, their NNIDs. Yeah. Yeah. And at the time, it didn't seem too bad. And they were saying it was about 160,000 people, but it wasn't getting that much information. And just turn on two-factor auth on your current Nintendo account. Because these Nintendo network IDs are old accounts linked to, I think it was an, an old Nintendo thing that doesn't exist anymore, but the account was linked to the new Nintendo ID. It was all extremely confusing. But at the time, it was just turn on two-factor auth and don't worry about it. Well, it turns out there's almost twice as many people affected. And actually, if you had either a PayPal account or a credit card attached to your nin- your net- bleh, your Nintendo network ID, then the attackers could actually make purchases using your money. Oh, wow. I don't think they could get your details, but they could basically route purchases through it. So they could spend your money on stuff. So actually, that is a problem. So if you are a, if you do have a Nintendo account, I would suggest you have a read of the iMore story to get a little bit more information. There has been lots of stuff going on in the world of social media because, well, the more we live online, the more social media matters, I guess. So I should have reordered these stories. I'm going to put the first story at the end. So mentally move it to the end. Um, well, now, probably the biggest bit of news is that a major shakeup is underway in Reddit. They're changing their board. They had one of their founders resign and say, replace me with a, with a black person, oh, um, yeah. which I believe is happening. And then there was a blog post on the Reddit blog basically saying, we are rethinking everything. It's a long post, so if you're interested, have a read. Um, And then I'm sort of a little bit self-indulgent here, but there was a very interesting Irish story related to Reddit. So there is a a subreddit for Ireland, which has quite a lot of members because it's a subreddit for a whole country. And they have started to close down every night and then reopen every morning because of the absolute avalanche of racism and hate that someone outside of Ireland is posting on that red subreddit. How do they, uh, what, what does turning it off at night do? It means that the Irish moderators, when they're in their beds, don't wake up the next morning to oh, a okay. giant big mess. Okay, so it doesn't stop the crap from coming in, but it's, it means they can deal with it while they're awake? Well, yes, yeah, so it stops it coming in at night. Um, so that there's no time when there's no moderators. So they basically can keep on top of it. Okay. But yeah, I mean, that's terrible that we've arrived at that stage. And a lot of it seems to be racial abuse stuff, which I guess is related to the BLM stuff. But it, it, I, yeah, anyway, yeah. So major shakeup seems like a good idea, Reddit. Um, and we have some Facebook stories. So Facebook is going to verify the identities of accounts that churn out viral posts. So basically... Facebook obviously see what goes viral, right? Because, well, that's their business. So they're going to pay special attention to the accounts that are creating the posts, which spread like wildfire. And then they're going to go back and validate the identities of those posters. And if they can't validate the identities, then they're going to suppress the posts. Hmm. So it's an interesting way of focusing their attention on the most problematic accounts. So is, is that clever of because of fake accounts that are causing, that are multiplying each other? Yeah, so it's That's all the, the various theory. tactics being used by people trying to make something that isn't actually popular spread like wildfire. Hmm. Okay. So basically election interference and I'm sure scams and all sorts of stuff. Most of the bad stuff is people artificially making something seem popular that isn't, right? That's sort of the aim of trying to manipulate Facebook. Okay. So it's 
It's an interesting move. And again, it's them using their big data in a way that's actually friendly to us. So I sort of, if you're, they're going to use it anyway, so I may as well do some good with it. Yeah, yeah right. exactly. Uh, also speaking of some good, uh, Facebook uh, have announced that a new feature called Manage Activity is coming out, which is going to make it easier for you to basically remove or to hide rather old posts. So if you basically decide, oh, I don't remember everything I did as a teenager, it was probably vastly stupid. You can now just basically go and say, delete all my old stuff and at least start fresh or whatever. So it's kind of an interesting that they're making it easier for you to manage your old stuff and do a bit of a cleanse of your digital footprints, which is no bad thing given the amount of recruiting firms that will look on social media these days. You know, as much as I like that, you can't help but wonder what about where you really do need to see what a politician did a year ago. But isn't that what actual news sites are for i mean this isn't going to remove stories from cnn or whatever so if you do something newsworthy you will be in the news archive of the world no but you know how they always go back um uh, let's let's pick on the canadian uh prime minister where they go back and find a picture of him from college where he had blackface right but is is that actually important that that he used to do stupid things in the past and and that could be a, a political debate to have between two humans. I don't want to have that debate, but I can see sure. that there are people who believe that that was very important. Um, so you have to balance whether or not you want to allow that with something like this. Uh, I know where I come down on that. The privacy of millions outweighs any small, tiny benefit of yeah. accidentally seeing stuff. Yeah, it, I'm just trying to make the debate obvious, right? Sure. There, there is a debate to be had which way we would think it should go. That's a... You are playing the devil's advocate and doing so extremely well. <laughs> okay, thanks. Do you know that was actually a thing in the Catholic Church? Hmm. Devil's advocate. I, I heard about this recently. To become a saint, you have to be argued against by a learned church scholar called the devil's advocate who has to argue why Mother Teresa shouldn't be a saint. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I thought that was cool. So anyway, sorry, the, the complete <laughs> random uh, sidetrack there. Bart knows a um, lot of weird stuff. Isn't there? So on to Twitter-related stories. Twitter are labelling all tweets linking 5G to coronavirus as being misinformation, sort of like happened a certain president recently. So I, I saw a thing that in, um, in the UK, they had this problem that people were selling a thumb drive that you could plug into your laptop and and create like a, a three meter bubble around yourself to protect yourself from 5G. <laughs> and you could use it in your house. Wow. And it would protect your whole house. And and I say they should have let them keep selling it. In fact, go to some of those rallies and hand those out. <laughs> that is that is tinfoil hats taken to a whole new level and turned into a, an economic opportunity. Yeah. You I don't have to admire people, I, don't I, you? I exactly the way. <laughs> It's like, oh, but man, they banned them. It was so disappointing. (laughs) Indeed. Twitter have said that they're going to revamp their verification system. And they're going to do it in such a way that instead of them picking on people upon whom they shall bestow the blue blue checkmark, you will get to decide if you want to apply for validation. And then if you can push through the various documentation, then you get your blue tick. That seems like a much better approach to these things. It gets rid of the claim about favoritism and so forth. So hope, I'm looking forward to that. And then I can press the button and get myself a blue tick. I made a joke on Twitter about that because uh, 
Patrick Beja was on the Daily Tech News show talking about this very thing, and he was bemoaning the fact that he didn't get a blue tick mark when he wanted one, and uh, you know back when. And uh, mm. but his Twitter handle is not Patrick, so I said, well, if not Patrick has a verified check mark, does that mean he is Patrick? <laughs> <laughs> I made myself laugh. At least. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, Twitter are trialing an interesting feature with a random collection of their accounts. If you go to retweet an article that you haven't actually clicked on the link to open, it will tell you, uh, why are you retweeting something you haven't actually read? I like that a lot. I love that. I don't know if it'll work, but if it it stops even 1% of the garbage that's mindlessly retweeted, I'm in favor. You know, 1% is 1%. Yeah. And finally, just in case you didn't, you know, in case you were in any doubt that this stuff goes on. Twitter have disclosed that 32,000 fake accounts have been linked to China, Russia and Turkey governments. So that is the misinformation machine in action. Wow. Yeah. Signal can now automatically blur faces in photographs and you can basically export those photographs so you can use them in any app. So it could be a nice way to, to, could be a useful feature, not a nice bit of privacy in Signal. Mm. Uh, Snapchat are going to not promote President Trump's tweets anymore following not, his... Not demoting, just not promoting, right? Precisely. So they have basically said, what we choose to highlight is our free speech. We are choosing to remove our speech from amplifying his. Which is okay, so a not, very not, neutral thing to not do. Not blocking in any way, just not, yeah. not promoting... Um, yeah, so uh, it is. You like, could argue it's the least they could do, but you would. I would also argue, and it's a good thing. I think it's a sane approach. I mean, that sounds kind of, yeah. you know, it, reasonable. Yeah. Sensible. Was there anything in particular that uh, caused them to do that? Uh, I believe it was the when the rioting starts, the shooting starts. Okay, because of the violence in that. Because of the the implicit threat of violence. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, meanwhile, TikTok has signed up to the European Union's. Um, pledge on fighting fake news so they have a bunch of guidelines on what companies should do and tiktok have signed up to follow those guidelines it's not legally binding but it's nonetheless you know here's a list of things we'd like you to do okay we're on board so it's interesting meanwhile our friends at zoom have had a very mixed time of it since last we spoke about them things started so well A few days after we last recorded, Security Now came out and Steve Gibson did a deep dive into the white paper they released describing their new end-to-end encryption scheme they're rolling out over the next couple of months. And it sounded wonderful. Like, I mean, it genuinely, it was so well engineered. They had a roadmap of how to get from here to there. And basically what they're trying to do is rebuild the foundation without the house ever falling down or not existing. Hmm. And they have a whole big process to manage to achieve that impossible task and the final product looks amazing and all the steps in between are sensible so technologically speaking two thumbs up from steve and listening to it i was like wow i like this and then things didn't go so good so they decided uh end-to-end encryption is only for paid accounts or for school accounts um oh right because apparently that would somehow help the FBI or something? Yeah, I think the logic was that if you were a nefarious character, you were probably using a free account because if you're a paid account, they could figure out who you are. I think that's what people deduced perhaps the logic was. 
Yeah, I, I'm afraid I'm much more cynical than you sometimes. Well, I didn't say I agreed with that. I'm saying that's ah, what okay. I said. That's what people inferred from the information given. Yeah, my theory is we want this as a feature we can upsell for. Yeah. Because people clearly want it. Like, clearly people want end-to-end encryption. Is that wrong? Anyway. Um, I mean, look, it's their choice how they do it commercially. But what made me cranky, actually, was just not owning it. I think it's perfectly reasonable to say, we're a commercial company, we need to make money. This is going to be a feature we charge for. It's costing us a fortune to implement this. We need to make our money back. We're not a charity. And I would have gone, yeah. Fair to me. Hmm. Okay. Pretending it's about protecting the world from child abuse and stuff. Yeah, it just sounds really bad with me. Is that what they did? Well, I mean, that's sort of the implication, right? Oh, will someone think of the children is basically what it boiled down to. And that just rubs me up the wrong way when companies just try to spin me as if I'm an idiot. I don't like being spun. Well, at least not if I notice. If you're good enough at it that I don't notice, (laughs) I guess you win. But (laughs) That's one way to look at it. If you if you fail and you try to spin me and I notice, I am not going to be a happy camper. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, they then got themselves into some more deep water when the Chinese government said, please end this call where people are remembering the Tiananmen Square massacre. And Zoom didn't just terminate the call. They also banned the accounts of the call organizers who were not in China. So the Chinese government got... Other got people from other countries banned from Zoom. That's not right. Hang on, I thought we talked a while ago about Zoom about having rooting. a policy that that you could have a call that was only allowed in your country. I, no, it was where your data would be stored and stuff. So that was about routing calls and stuff. So this is kind of different, right? So this is the Chinese government. So basically, the people organizing this call intentionally had people from China in the call. So it wasn't that they were trying to avoid the call going into China. They were trying to talk to people in China. So that call was always going to be going into China. Uh, But the Chinese government saw the call. They, for whatever reason, I'm assuming some sort of intelligence, they knew it was a commemoration of the Tiananmen Square massacre, which they, that is a serious, serious bugaboo in the Chinese government do their absolute best to pretend they didn't murder thousands of their own citizens oh, in Tiananmen Square. Like right. That is a huge thing. And they basically said to Zoom, shut it down. And Zoom didn't just kill the call, which you could argue that seems reasonable, or at least they could have... I guess you could say it's reasonable that they would have killed the connection to China for that call. You could make that argument, right? Because the Chinese government is going into China... But they didn't just kill the call. They then banned the accounts of the organizers, and the organizers were not in China, and the organizers were not Chinese. Okay. Hmm. So then the whole world was like, why on earth? So that would be like the, that would basically be like Donald Trump saying to Zoom to kill my account in Ireland. It's like, why on earth would one country's government get to kill accounts belonging to citizens of another country? Did it kill the account or just cut them off from being in that call? I thought it was just being in the call. Oh, Both. oh, no, no. they killed. Okay. Yeah, they banned the accounts. Okay. They banned the people from Zoom. OK, never mind. Yeah, I didn't catch that uh, subtlety there. Yeah, well, that made the Internet go potty. Like proper, proper, proper full on scandal. So they then hit the back pedal really, really fast, reinstated the accounts and posted an apology letter 
we fell short. And then they basically said, from now on, nothing the Chinese government tells us to do is going to have an effect on anyone not in China. Which okay. is kind of seems reasonable to me. The Chinese government's authority ends at their border. And if you want to do business in the country, you have to obey the local laws. But the local laws don't get to go outside the country. So they're yeah. ending up in the right place. But egg on face again. But, but, but I got to You know what? Everybody screws up. It's how you react when you screw up. That really, 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 really matters to me. And how quickly you react. Yeah, so I'm being able to say we fell short. Different, but yeah, that's no. I'm, I'm, I'm still okay with that. Okay, okay. And as I say, you're right. Where you end up at the end is definitely the most important. Yeah. I think I'm still smarting at the at the whole. You weren't honest about the encryption thing. I think that's making me cranky. Yeah. Meanwhile, U.S. lawmakers are asking Zoom about its ties to China. So basically, the U.S. Congress went, "Oh, there's something people are angry about. Let us jump on this bandwagon." Oh, so, let's let's not forget that Zoom originally said they were end-to-end -end encryption and they were just lying. <laughs> yes. Or, well, you could make the argument it was technically true, except they had the keys and could intercept the calls, which is otherwise known as not end-to-end -end encryption. <laughs> yeah, it definitely defeats the spirit of the whole concept. And it's certainly misleading. Yeah. Anyway, um, meanwhile, in WebAuthn world, Google have updated their iOS apps to make use of Apple's new WebAuthn APIs so you can use um, RFI, it's not RFID, the other one, NFC-based tokens with Google's apps on iOS now for WebAuthn, which is nice. And then looping all the way back to the first story, 17... Major tech companies, including Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and Apple, have joined forces to reinvest in an industry-wide effort to combat online child abuse. That, to me, is a happy story to end the social media segment on. Ah, I see why you did it out of order. I like it. Yes. They're also going to have an annual conference, I'm assuming virtual this year, uh, where their top child protection officers from all of those companies are going to get together and share experience and knowledge and basically learn from each other. And so the whole industry as a whole is going to learn lessons from each other and everyone's going to move forward together. And I'm like, thank you. Well done. This is a good use of your resources. Nice. So deep dive. Cole Stranger is the shiny name for a vulnerability in Universal Plug-and-Play, or UPNP. Uh, the good news is that from a home user point of view, we're not in danger of us becoming the victim of anything. However, we are in danger of becoming a very bad netizen, as I would say, so citizen of the internet. So... Universal plug and play is a protocol that's implemented by a lot of things, but in terms of us home users, the big place it might show up is our routers, or routers, as you guys would say. Mm -hmm. And some router routers you can do say the routers. bizarre and perverse thing of enabling UPnP on the internet or WAN side of the bloody thing, which is nuts that that's ever, ever the case at any router or router. If that's true, there is a bug in the specification, so it's not a problem with someone's implementation. The specification was broken, so very much like the Bluetooth stuff we talked about last time. And that bug doesn't allow an attacker to attack the router or the device. It allows the attacker to co-opt the device so that it becomes a gateway through which they can direct 
denial of service attacks. So you basically become a drone. Wait, so your what, router what sitting in your house. The router itself is becomes the device. The router, yeah. So the the device, which in the case of a home user is likely to be your router, becomes a minion in someone's distributed denial of service attack. So your your hardware and your internet connection get hijacked by someone to attack someone else. So you're not the victim, but you are part of the problem. So you're basically being a bad citizen online. So a lot of a lot of things really, really try to get to turn on UPnP. I have spent a great deal of time and effort not turning it on uh, for mm-hmm. Plex to work successfully. And it's a big pain <laughs> to not have UPnP on. So I understand why people turn it on. Yeah, now the problem is, so this is, in this case, this is a vulnerability in UPnP that doesn't put you in danger. It just puts you in danger of being a bad influence. But there are actually other known problems with UPnP, many of which, I mean, there was a big one in 2018, which lots and lots and lots of devices have not been patched from yet because firmware updates are not always forthcoming. And if they are forthcoming from the vendor, most people don't notice a router wants an update because when do you log into it? Only when it's broken and only the Apple ones have a blinking orange light to remind you. And even that doesn't work if it's in your closet. Mm -hmm. So it's probably wise to have it off anyway. And this is just reason number the next one. Um, By the way, I'm uh, I don't know all routers, but the uh, Euro app will tell you, "Hey, I want to do an update." Good. I mean, the, the, these modern routers, yeah, more modern, more high tech devices are getting smarter about this, so it is getting better. But there are a lot of houses on planet Earth which have a router supplied by the ISP the day you signed up oh, yeah. and that you're never going to look at again until it breaks. And these things, they often don't. Right. Right. I'll be curious to see if I see something come up on. In fact, I will check right now. Let me reboot my router while we're talking, Bart. Oh, what could possibly go wrong? Oh, wait. <laughs> Is it doing anything important? Oh, yeah. It's connecting you to the Internet. I am not seeing an update um, for it. So Yeah. So basically, we- if you're an ISP... What you really what you really hope is that your ISP blocks the UPnP port for because no one should be reaching your router from the outside in, right? UPnP should be from the LAN to the router, not the other way around. So ISPs can safely block UPnP traffic from heading towards their clients because it just shouldn't be on that side of anyone's router. So in theory, if you have a good ISP, they should protect you from this. But theory and practice may vary. But something like Plex that. The whole point is to have it open on the outside, right? On the WAN side. No, 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 no. But UPnP is listening on the inside, right? I don't know. I, I assumed it was No, no, on the that's outside. how it works. So you, okay, your Plex stuff is in your house, mm-hmm. and it needs to negotiate outgoing port mappings. And instead of you having to map the ports yourself, UPnP configures your router on your behalf. But that's but on the LAN side? Yes. Yeah, so you're... Oh. you're device inside your network is telling your router how to connect to the outside. Well, so what we're talking about here... Have that, then? How come you won't let me have that on? That sounds awesome. Well, that's because of the 20... Well, it's not awesome because any any piece of malware that ever makes it into your house gets to control your router and basically rig, rig your DNS server and man in the middle every single thing you do. So if you have UPnP on inside and malware gets inside then that statement is true, correct? Okay, so there's lots of problems with UPnP. So let us assume that your UPnP implementation is 100% perfect and has no bugs in it, and 
has just got a firmware update to fix this latest problem. So it's perfect to the spec. Okay. So that's an optimistic worldview. Let's take that worldview. Then UPnP's job in life is to silently, without any human interaction, reprogram your router because most people don't like programming the router and that's icky work. So that means that anything on your LAN, be it an IoT device that gets compromised, be it your browser with a dodgy web app, or sorry, web ad, be it a piece of malware on your computer, anything in your LAN gets to change the settings of your router, including what DNS server to use to look up everything coming out of your network. Okay. So that's just dangerous on its face to have your network be reprogrammed behind your back. And that's if everything's working perfectly. And then we have a long, long list of previous vulnerabilities, which have been patched in theory, but probably not in practice on many, many people's devices. Okay. So it's it's problematic. I see. All right, fine. I'll but you're right, it it's convenient. It, it, it's it, convenient. It's a lot of support calls to Joe LaGreca. I'm telling you. <laughs> Sorry, Joe. <laughs> Cost him like an hour or two a month, I think, for me to have that turned off. But I don't want to turn people off. I'm lying. It's that it was once. No. Well, do the, yeah. Anyway. So that is the latest. Uh, but basically, in this case, don't set your hair on fire. You're going to hear a lot of people talk about, oh, it's on every router. The internet is doomed. No, but you don't want your device to be attacking other people. And it's so flexible. And it's fixable. Assuming your vendor gives you a software update that you install. Yes. By the way, I just Action opened, alerts. I just opened a port on my router that allows Plex to work, and now everything's fine. That's really all it took. Yeah, that's what I do. Because uh, like you, I, I also run a Plex server, and I just ma I just port map the port, and that was it. Yeah. Um. Action alerts. Last Tuesday was Patch Tuesday. Massive update from Microsoft. Fairly important one from Adobe. So patchy, patchy, patch, patch, and don't delay. Uh, one of them is in the Samba SMB vulnerability, which is Ooh. quite nasty. And I don't mention every Firefox update because they happen every four weeks. But in this case, the headline was Firefox fixes cryptographic data leakage. I thought that's probably worth a special mention. Okay. So Firefox will auto update itself, but that update won't actually be applied until you do the thing I never do and actually turn the browser off and on again. Ah, you keep it on all the time? I keep it on all the time with five kabillion tabs because uh -huh. I have tree style tabs enabled so I can have a hundred tabs and still see what I'm doing. I had to stop using Firefox because that, that uh, plugin was so useful. Tree style tabs, that makes the tabs go down the left sidebar and so you can have like a hundred open. <laughs> In collapsible nested groups. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. Don't get Firefox. Don't get that plugin. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, then you end up like Firefox has gotten really good about actually unloading those tabs from memory that you haven't opened oh. in six months. Oh, that's good. And now when you click on them, it takes it a second to reload it because it's basically gone and taken them out of RAM. So it's actually gotten really efficient at handling stupid amount of tabs. So it's gotten <laughs> even worse, Allison. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, patchy, patchy, patch, patch. In terms of worthy warnings, um, this should come as a surprise to no one. Crooks hijack Black Lives Matter to spread malware and various other nefarious and nasty things. Wait a minute. Black Lives Matter is a set of words. How do you hijack it? A set of words. As in, they are sent, They are focusing their malware on oh, people getting people's attention okay. by exploiting Black Lives Matter, like they do with hurricanes, like they do with COVID. Like... So again, Tuesday. Again, Tuesday. It makes okay. me sad, but yes. Okay. Something I didn't know was a thing. Bitcoin scammers 
took a bunch of YouTube channels, converted them to look like official SpaceX channels, and then used them to trick people into sending them Bitcoin. Huh. So the way this works is you find the channel. It doesn't matter what it's called. It doesn't matter what it's about. You just find the channel with lots of subscribers and a weak password or something. You take it over, you completely transform it, and then you basically use it to send stuff to all of those subscribers you just stole. Hmm. I didn't know that was a thing. What's it got so to do YouTube with SpaceX, needed though? blue tick box. Hmm? What's it got to do with SpaceX? Well, that's what they did. So they the three three large streams with tens of thousands of members were taken over, converted to look like official SpaceX uh, streams. A bunch of content was mirrored there and snuck in between the legitimate content were requests for uh, send us bloody blah Bitcoin and you'll get such and such in return. Basically okay, so they were SpaceX people. channels before. No, no, no. So they were random channels with hundreds of thousands of members. So I'm watching somebody who posts puppy videos and all of a sudden it's going to change to SpaceX. That's weird. Right, but you're not going to know that because you're just going to go to your YouTube homepage and it's going to autoplay the next video. Huh. And it's going to be coming from a channel that looks like SpaceX. So you're not really going to notice that this channel used to not look like SpaceX because oh, okay. you probably subscribe to the real SpaceX too. Well, maybe. If you're a puppy well, watcher. Okay. So remember, these the attackers are out to get 1%. Yeah. Yeah, right. I just didn't realize it was a done thing. So basically, YouTube need to have a blue tick system so you can actually know that you're on the real site. Because basically what this tells me is just because something has a few hundred thousand subscribers doesn't mean it's legit. It could have been hijacked yesterday and utterly transformed. So there were basically four official looking SpaceX channels, the real one and three fakes. Wow. And they were all mirroring the latest Jeff Bezos interviews and stuff because the bad guys, they don't care about a bit of plagiarism. And then just injecting their content in between. I was like, oh, wow, that's really clever, you evil sods. <laughs> Never occurred to me. So there we go. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, Amtrak have suffered a data breach. Um, they're not being very forthcoming. What we know is that customers log in, so we appear to have lost usernames and passwords, and personally identifiable information, which they did not specify, have been exposed, but no financial data. So if you're an Amtrak, it's part of their frequent guests. They call them guests. I would have called them passengers, but okay. <laughs> part of their frequent guest program. Um, so if you are an Amtrak user, that probably makes a lot more sense to you. And link in show notes. There's an app called Babylon Mobile Health, and they managed to connect the wrong patient data to the wrong users, <laughs> which is a giant big oopsie. So if you're a user of that app, you need to go read the story on Naked Security. Brian Krebs is warning of a very effective fake site. So there's a genuine private messaging service called privnote.com. And there's a really, really convincing fake called privnotes.com. So just an mm. S on the end. They look identical. They both actually function. But the one with the S on the end is watching everything going through the pretend private system finding Bitcoin IDs that people send to each other and changing them. So you receive a supposedly encrypted secure message telling you, oh, yeah, here, send me some money to, to my Bitcoin, only it's been altered in transit. And so you end up wiring the money to the wrong Bitcoin user, i.e. to the bad guys. Hmm. 
quite the intelligent scam. So be careful if you use PrivNote that you don't go to PrivNotes because that's not going to go well for you. Meanwhile, there is a botnet blasting its way through WordPress sites due to... They're basically using vulnerabilities in plugins and themes to read the content of your wp-config file, which contains your database username and password and basically gives them full access to your site. So then then the worm can basically sneak in and inject all the malware it wants into your website. So make sure WordPress itself now self-updates. But don't forget about all of those plugins and things. Keep them patched because that's now how this botnet is spreading like wildfire across the internet. That reminds me. I saw a couple uh, updates come in this morning. Did I remember to do them? Yes, I did. Good. Yay. (laughs) It's so easy to do. You know, you click update, update, update. They do make it easy. I, Mm -hmm. I do like it. Facebook paid for a zero day to help the FBI unmask a child predator. I this thought this would be a, yeah, I thought this would be a, a, a deep dive. I do not feel qualified to do this as a deep dive. There's a really good article on Naked Security that digs into the issues. I would recommend people read it. I can't do better. And I am so conflicted. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to say intelligently. Well, but let me let me say this. Um, I will say this. Uh, so Facebook paid for a zero day. They bought a zero day exploit in order to help catch a uh, child predator. They caught the guy and he's horrible. He pled guilty to what was it like 46 counts? I mean, it was it was really, really awful. Um, mm-hmm. On the other hand, they bought a zero day and they didn't um they didn't tell there was somebody they didn't tell yeah so the zero day was in um an operating system that is designed to keep you safe online it's it it, it uses the tor network and it's used by activists journalists government officials okay. and also a lot of people who are being stalked use it to keep themselves safe online so so they they used this flaw, they bought the flaw, used it, and helped the FBI, but didn't tell them that that the flaw existed. And the yeah. and part of it was they knew they saw that it was being fixed in the next update, I think. Something like that. Well, it was fixed. I'm not sure if that is why they didn't disclose. That's not clear to me. Okay. And okay. the other so- thing that's really not clear to me, because apparently the FBI didn't ask them to do this, they volunteered to do it. And the thing that I'm not at all sure of, because I, I just cannot find clarity because there's so much fuzziness around this story. I don't think there was ever a court that basically, I don't think this was court like ordered him to do anything. Yeah. yeah. So, but, but the, the point that boy, Bart was trying to make up front when he said conflicted is this is, boy, this is probably one of the best examples of where most sane people could argue both sides. Right. You could sit in a room alone and have this argument with yourself of whether that was right or wrong. Yeah, because this guy. So Facebook had been Facebook knew that this account. Well, it wasn't just one account. The guy had many accounts. But Facebook knew that there was a human being with multiple Facebook identities who had a long history of targeting people through Facebook. He was basically their public enemy number one. He was the most abusive person on Facebook. And now that's a high bar. (laughs) <laughs> to be the most abusive person on Facebook. Yeah. And they spent two years trying to get him. And eventually they decided to go this route. And so I, that's God's work right there. 
<laughs> I know. And, yeah, and they didn't and do I'm, a backdoor. They didn't do a backdoor or anything. Well, they also, yeah, see, if they had, if they had got the guy's IP address, handed it to the FBI, and then immediately informed the the software vendor of the vulnerability, I would probably find myself falling on the Facebook side. But they didn't. Mm. And if a judge had been involved, and if this had all been done with court supervision, I'd probably fall on Facebook side. But I don't know if that happened. And I, I yeah. wish that was clear in any of the reporting. But I, I looked through all the reporting I could find, and I just, there's no mention one way or the other. No one even, no journalist even raised the question, hmm. let alone answered it. And then there's all this fuzziness that Facebook apparently did this of their own volition and then told the FBI the guy's IP address. The FBI didn't actually ask them. They proactively did this. And that seems backwards to me as well. So I, I am, oh, it, yeah, I'll argue with myself forever over this one. <laughs> right, right. Okay, just I, I wanted to put a little more context to that. Yeah. And I'm always very worried about doing Facebook stories because I'm afraid of uh, being too anti-Facebook and I don't want to be unfair to them. Yeah. Okay. So, fire extinguisher icon. Intel have patched a flaw enabling a vulnerability which has been given the name Crosstalk. It is yet another one of these side channel attacks against Intel CPUs. So since Spectre and Meltdown first drew the security community's attention to the fact that CPUs could be the sources of insecurity, we have found tens of these things, and this is just the latest one. <laughs> the thing that is true with this one, and has been true of all of them, is that for home users, the only way to exploit this attack is to have malware running on the same computer as the process you want to attack. Well, hang on oh. a sec, you've already got malware running on the same computer, so as a home user, that means the show's over anyway, so this is irrelevant. Right. Where this is anything but irrelevant, of course, is the cloud, which is other people's computers. And on a cloud computer, you have different processes belonging to different companies, potentially on different parts of the world, sharing a single CPU. So any sort of leakage between processes is catastrophic. So the Amazons, the Googles, the DigitalOceans of the world, they all need to apply this patch. And there is a patch. Uh, those of us at home, we don't have to stress ourselves over this. I think when this... Uh... Uh, original Spectre and Meltdown came down, you referred to this as the gift that keeps on giving? I think I predicted we'd be talking about it for a very, very, very long time. Mm -hmm. I'd give myself a pat on the back on that one. Right. Okay. Um, a story that seems bad to me, I'm not, I, I'm not a big, I haven't really followed the company Brave, but the concept is that they're a for-profit company and their big selling point is that they have a privacy-focused browser. And they're not, a devoid of controversy and they've stepped in it again because they were caught having affiliate links being injected into web pages as a way of monetizing people which doesn't seem very privacy focused to me yeah so because it link was in show information if, right yeah so link in show notes if you want to if you're a brow if you're a brave user and you want to figure out for yourself how you feel about it it smells bad to me but i'm not going to make a strong statement on it Meanwhile, so that's all the bad stuff out of the way. Now we switch into happy gear. Um, first happy story, Apple's bug bounty program is working as it should. They paid a guy quite a lot of money for finding a bug which allowed you to bypass the signing in part of sign in with Apple. 
oh. which is how it should go. Yeah. So okay. he found the problem, reported to Apple. Apple fixed it before disclosing it to the world, paid him for his trouble, and we were all more secure because of it. So yay. Meanwhile, both IBM and Amazon are pulling back from using their AI for facial recognition because of fears about biases and privacy concerns, not to mention possible abuse by overreaching government and law enforcement agencies. So that is, in the case of IBM, they're basically saying, we're just stopping this. And in the case of Amazon, it's we're putting it on pause for one year and then we're going to figure out what we want to do. IBM's, I, I find IBM's case more convincing, but hey, I'll take anything I can get. So that's a good news story. And then IBM get the feature again. So two big tech companies have released new open source projects to help developers make stuff more secure. So this isn't for us, the end user. This is for the developers of all of our apps. So Apple have released a GitHub project with a whole bunch of useful resources for people making password managers. One of the things they're doing is cataloging all of the weird password requirements on different websites. So that way, password apps have a, a maintained database of rules they can use to make the most secure possible passwords on all the different websites, which all have their own foibles. Mm-hmm. So that's, and there's other tools in there too, but that one really caught my eye. So they're cataloging the securest possible way to treat all the different websites out there, or many different websites out ah, there. So that's kind of cool. cool. Yeah, that's very cool. And then so, IBM did so this again will be for the one passwords and last passes and dash lanes of the world to have better resources. Yes. Okay, precisely. Or any app that helps you to choose a password. Well, you know what I know of that's really good is called xkpasswd.net. I don't know if you've heard of this, but it's this really cool website yeah. where you can go have uh, it create passwords for you. It's really awesome. You should check it out. <laughs> Thank you, Alison. <laughs> Actually, the people who would benefit from this are browser vendors. Mm. because when you sign up to a website, your browser will often offer, hey, would you like me to make you a password? So I imagine the reason this came into being is because Apple were building this database for Safari and they decided to crowdsource more. Because everyone benefits if lots of people are contributing to that Git repository. Right, right. Uh, Meanwhile, IBM have done something excruciatingly cool that's not going to sound cool at first blush. They have released a free, and I do mean free, it's BSD licensed, I checked, a free implementation of fully homomorphic homomorphic encryption for iOS and macOS, and there are Linux and Android versions on the way. Now, what on earth does that mean? Homomorphic (laughs) encryption is like black magic in the best possible way. So I guess white magic. (laughs) Normally, if you want to process... Wait, black magic can be a good thing. Maybe that's a fair should, point. Maybe that's a new that. one. So many landmines. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm cranky at myself for trotting straight into that one. <laughs> I got to get out of the habit of associating black with bad. That's 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 yeah. bad. So black magic, the best possible kind. There we go. Um. Yeah. Sorry, there's a few more landmines that my brain almost trod in, but my mouth is not going to. Okay. Um. So normally. If you store encrypted data that you need to process, the way it works is you read the encrypted data, you decrypt it, you process it, and then you re-encrypt it and save it back to disk. Homomorphic encryption allows you to perform processing on data without decrypting it. So you don't actually know 
what it is you're processing and yet you can apply a whole bunch of operations and you know the operation has been applied even though you can't see what you're doing. Really? Oh, it, it's amazing. Like the mathematics is head exploding, but it means you can crunch data. So you can have a data crunching server that has no access to the decryption key. So if that server gets hacked, nothing leaks. Oh, that's crazy. That is game changing and mathematically head exploding. Yeah. And they've just released it as free BSD licensed libraries you can just use. It has instructions for installing it into Xcode and you just call the API. Hmm. And it's coming to Linux and Android next. That's just cool. Finally, on the Just Cool camp, our friends at Cloudflare have added a new variant to their 1.1.1.1 DNS service. It's called DNS for Families, or 1.1.1.1 for Families, and you basically get two choices. If you change your DNS to 1.1.1.2, you get malware filtering on your DNS. If you change it to 1.1.1.3, you get adult content blocking and malware filtering on your DNS. So I thought 1.1.1.1, the one with all ones, had malware filtering already. Uh, no, I think its big thing was that it was really, really privacy aware. Oh, and privacy. Okay. That it wasn't spying on you. I think that was their big selling point. Just 9.9.9.9, which is done by a bunch of security companies, and that one has malware filtering on it. Okay. So why and there's, is... there's Google's 8.8.8.8. There's, there's, oh, there's so many of these out there. Um, so the blog post says introducing 1.1.1 for families. Yes. But, but it's at 1.1.1.2 and 1.1.1.3. 1 the branding is a bit off. Yeah. Um, why, why do you have to be a family to not want malware? I would think that's one I would... Okay, so we're not saying it's only for families, but what if you read the blog post, what it says is we got lots and lots of feedback from home users saying that the thing we want most as home users is this. And so they went, oh, this is what home users want. Here you go, we'll call it for family so you know it's for you. Okay. By the way, if you're so an IPv6 fan, uh, they've got IPv6 versions as well. Yeah, strangely enough, they're not as memorable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Come on, Bart. 2606-4700-4700-1112. That's... Obvious. How can I not remember that? Yeah. Actually, the end of it is 1112 and 1112. Yeah. Yeah. The old (laughs) IPv4 is at the end of the IPv6, but yeah, it's still not memorable exactly. I'm going to be blocking some malware. I'm up for that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going for that too, actually, because I'm using 1.1.1 at the moment on my uh, PFSense box. So I'm just going to change that one to a two and then get shiny new features. There you go. I'm going to do that right now while we're talking. Probably safe, actually. But anyway. Um, no, I, I, you do have to restart the router to uh, at least. Oh, okay. PF sense you don't. So that's okay. Top tips. Um, if you're living in a part of the world where there are protests at the moment, you may be interested in how to use the ACLU's mobile justice app. It's an app that has a bunch of features to help you protest safely. Mm. Um, unfortunately, it does include things like how to video yourself when interacting with police. Mm. It's not pleasant, but it is useful. So link in show notes. The IC3, which is a, the U.S. government's Internet Safety Agency, has released a security. literal and genuine security PSA. agency, not safety agency. Okay, my show notes say security. Did my mouth say the other? Yes. Okay, okay so start it over. IC3 says what? They have literally released a PSA. If you go to the link, it actually says public service announcement or public safety announcement. It's an actual PSA 
warning that there is a massive uptick in fraud against banking apps. Mm. And they have really good practical advice. None of it's earth shattering, but it's just a nice collection of practical advice. And so it may just be worth reminding yourself. And the, the last one is really the best. If you're in any way suspicious whatsoever, phone your bank and mm. use the number on your bloody ATM card, not the number on the app that you're suspicious of. <laughs> By the way, this is from the FBI. The yeah, the, the ICP up, is it's a separate division, but I think it falls under the FBI, which falls under the DOJ, which falls under the government. Right. I think that's so, how it hangs together. Yeah, so it says if this is an announcement from the FBI. Huh. Yeah, it's, it's good stuff. Good advice. Yeah. Yeah, the, the webpage looks terrible on a phone. I had terrible trouble trying to read it while out for a walk this morning, but it, it's good advice. The content is good <laughs> if the website is a bit arcane. Yeah. It just looks like it was written. It's not a text. It's not an image, luckily, but it's just one step better than that. Just one. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it could be flash. That could be worse. Anyway. Uh, and then a very timely reminder from Dave Mark over at Loop Insight. Um, in these troubled times, you may want to enable the feature in iOS's Do Not Disturb mode that allows certain contacts to bypass Do Not Disturb so they can always reach you in case of emergency. I've had this set up for years, but it's just a really good reminder that A, this feature exists, so you can have peace and quiet, and you can have your phone not ping every time something scary happens on Twitter, therefore giving you the mental space you need to deal with these troubled times, and know that your important people can still get you in case of emergency. I would like the exact opposite article. I would like the huh? article that allows me to actually stop people from getting through. I cannot stop getting messages from my family can't do it i can take them i've turned off uh, the uh there's actually an emergency ringtone thing i was gonna write a blog post about this but at the end i don't know the answer there's a way in the ringtone to to allow emergency bypass i've turned that off i've taken people out of favorites it doesn't matter steve can call me in the middle of a podcast can text me can do anything he wants and it will come through i i can't make i can't make it stop i've been fighting this i was on uh uh clockwise and my phone rang and i'm like what i mean i'm on dnd on everything on my watch my phone my mac everywhere i'm really good about remembering to do it and i just i still get these messages coming through everything buzzes yes, everything it doesn't, rings. it doesn't necessarily work off your favorites so you can choose any group to be the group that gets to bypass so i have a group called emergency bypass so to me, favorites, so the way I have it configured, favorites don't enter into it. So that may have something to do with it. So on your Mac, when you star somebody, that makes them a special type of contact. And that's what I'm talking about when I say uh, a Right. A but favorite. the Do Not Disturb feature doesn't have to use that special feature. So depending mm -hmm. on how you have it set up, that may be irrelevant. Well, I may, which well, may be why it's not well, but I, what I learned from Dan Morin was that there actually is a way to change the ringtone on the person within uh, on the iPhone. You can change the ringtone to something that is emergency bypass. That's one of the options. Still didn't fix it when yeah, I because okay. So the way the way I always set it up is I created a group in contact which I call DND bypass, and then I said <laughs> then I explicitly in the Do Not Disturb settings mapped the ability to bypass to that group. Hmm. Now, so uh, there's also are, okay, so your options are everyone, no one, favorites, or group. Okay. 
Um, there's so also, if they're an emergency to, contact, I think maybe they can get through because of that. But that's only if you specify the group that should have that role. Anyway, uh, it, emergency, it's, contacts are, emergency contacts aren't a group. That's... Oh, you mean, sorry, you mean the emergency contact for when your phone is in lock screen mode? Yes. Like you're found on the side of the road having been hit by a car thrown off the bonnet of the car from your bicycle and it knows to call wing. Well, no, it means that someone who picks up your phone without having your passcode can call, yeah. Right, can call wing. Yeah, but it, I don't think that has anything to do with do not disturb bypass. Because that's literally the exact opposite. It, it, I'm just saying, it's got to be one of these things and I can't make it stop. Because there okay, are times I, where I know I don't. I, I have it working really well for me, but not that that helps you. But anyway. Yeah. The, the, I will go read this. Uh, yeah, so it's in iPhoneLife.com. Uh, is it? Yeah, you, you, you link to Gruber, but Gruber's just rebroadcasting I didn't know, I didn't somebody else. Loop Insight is... Or whoever Loop Insight is. Dave Mark. Okay, but it links to, if you if you click on the, the title, it's... Right, but I actually was, I was actually going with his, his stuff, his English oh. around the quotation. So you, you told me to, to click on the titles so that I would get to the real source article, and the real source article oh, is case, I was actually Life. trying to link to the English around the quotes from the other article. Okay. But the, the, um, it's that article that has all the screenshots that shows you how to do it. Yeah, so the article's from a year ago, and then Dave has added a bunch of context around it, which is what sort of got me. So he has his own suggestions around that story from a year ago. Because I wouldn't, I would link straight to the other article because I'm very good about making sure my link juice goes to the people I want it to. Because link juice is important. Link juice powers the internet. Anyway, that is it for top tips. Uh, excellent explainers. Um, probably one of the most misunderstood laws in the United States of America is Section 32 of the U.S. Communications Decency Act. It is vitally important to the internet. Ars Technica put an awful, awful lot of work into explaining it and how it's misunderstood. I think it's really important because it's becoming an election issue in the States. Hmm. So okay. I would suggest I you have a read. Um, and then finally, if you plan to run any of the betas Apple are bound to announce on the 22nd of June when they have their virtual WWDC, Apple have preemptively released a blog post explaining how to log good bug reports. <laughs> So if you're going to run the betas, have a read so that you can be a productive member of the beta testing community. Okay. Finally, I How's have that two do not chance. disturb working for you, Bart? Sorry, I couldn't resist. Not turned on. Um, <laughs> probably not a good idea to have it not turned on, but there we go. Um, it is also telling me that I should have done something in half an hour ago. Um, but anyway, there we go. Palette cleansing. Because everything's physically closed, Stonehenge can't have their usual everyone being there in person for the summer solstice, so they're live streaming it to the planet for free. So a bonus from COVID, we can watch the sun do its thing on the summer solstice over in Stonehenge. And depending That's on how your time zones cool. are, yeah, depending on how your time zones work out, you mightn't even have to get up early. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah. And then finally, I just want to recommend a podcast mini series from uh, I think it's Washington Post. It's called Moonrise, and it's by 
a podcaster who has done some really amazing previous podcasts that I got completely sucked into. The first of them was called Presidential, where it was a one hour episode on every president of the United States, and they all got exactly an hour, which means that for the ones like Lincoln, you really, really, really have to work really hard to get his essence into an hour. But for the ones like Coolridge, who I've never heard of before, you actually get an hour on these guys. So it actually worked out really, really cool. And then the other one was called Constitutional, where they basically went through every article and every amendment to the Constitution in an, an episode each and explained them. And so whenever you hear people talk about Second Amendment rights or First Amendment rights or Fourth Amendment, uh, Fifth, I think, is the one that gives you your Miranda rights. Just, we just rattle them off by number, right? I don't even live in America and I'm rattling off, you know, <laughs> your bloody rights on this amendment and that amendment. So that every episode goes through it. But anyway, the same person turned her attention to the story of how America got to the moon. And rather than it being the romantic, everyone just loved going to space and that's why we went to space, it's the truth, which is a very, very interesting mix of different motivations. There's, there's the obvious people who were inspired by going to the moon. Like that was real. That was a thing. And then you have just raw politics where LBJ was like, well, I need something to beat the other guy. And well, I'm just going to be tough on the Russians. So I'm in favor of space now. And then you have the whole, uh, uh oh, we're scared of Sputnik. And then you have science fiction as an inspiration. It's it, basically, it's just the real human truth. And it's, even though you could spin it as being, oh, it's not romantic, I actually thought it was more romantic because it was truthful. <laughs> and I learned a lot. And I thought I knew a lot about the space race. So I think it's eight parts, might be six, but it's it's not huge. All very well produced. And by a podcaster whose work I have admired for a long time. So Moonrise is what it's called. And it has a great soundtrack. Very cool. I just, just send it to Steve. He'll eat that up. He loves those. Can't he get will. That's a bonus race. extra. As a bonus extra, I should also mention that the second season of 13 Minutes to the Moon has finally I'm finished. I was just going to say that. <laughs> but do you want to go ahead and plug it then? Well, the fun thing about uh, the 13 Minutes to the Moon was was a fabulous uh, podcast that was, um, well, originally it was going to the moon, but the second one is is uh, Apollo 13, and it's terrifying. And the problem yeah. is they ended it on a cliffhanger because... The guy doing it was a doc is a doctor and he was called in to work on COVID. So it's been like yeah. three months waiting for the end. And the ending is, I mean, they get it. Spoiler, they get home. Okay. But you still don't <laughs> believe it the whole way, the whole way through. Right. Yeah. Like they're literally episode, that second last episode ends with the spacecraft about to enter the atmosphere and everyone going, God, I wonder if that heat shield works. I wonder if we're on the right trajectory. We're about to go into radio silence fingers crossed and then it ended for three months <laughs> it was terrible that ending was great i listened to that on my quote-unquote stairmaster as i went up Excellent. and down my stairs in my house so a very literal stairmaster you mastered your stairs <laughs> exactly all right well this is good bart we got a lot of great content thanks for it as always excellent well as our listeners should know by now remember to stay patched so you stay secure well, that's going to wind things up for this week. Don't forget to send in your reviews to allison at podfeed.com. And you can find me on Twitter at podfeed. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. 
Podfeed.com slash Patreon if you want to become a patron of the Podfeed podcast, which is hard to say without popping my peas on my microphone. Or we could go to Podfeed.com slash PayPal, which is also hard to say, but it's a place you can make one-time donations. If you want to join our community, you could go to Podfeed.com slash Facebook or Podfeed.com slash Slack, depending on your persuasion. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, or if you want to come hang out with us, uh, what is it, a week from Tuesday for the WWDC uh, presentation, you can go to podfeet.com slash live. For the live show, though, do it on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time. Enjoy the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.